right. Hi, Cormac. Ooh. So, uh, this new Sufjan record um, just came out this past week. Uh, it's called A Beginner's Mind, um, and it's inspired by largely by movies that um, Sufjan and Angelo D'Augustine watched in Sufjan's cabin. Um, uh, it's definitely it's a folkier throwback e album. Um, yeah, I, I certainly thought it sounded a bit closer to his older stuff mm -hmm. than um, the things like Carrie and Laurel. Like it, I didn't, it definitely did not sound like that. It sounded something closer to like reminiscent of his early stuff or even the Illinois album. Yeah, like some of the softer songs on Illinois yeah. or Michigan. It reminded me of or like Seven Swans. It's got a little yeah. bit more orchestration than like the early early stuff where it's all just acoustic guitar. Um, but, uh, it's definitely, definitely throwback Sufjan. Um, so I gotta say the movies they picked are weird. You've got some like somewhat expected, like Wings of Desire, All About Eve, um, The Thing. Um, but you've got a couple of weird picks in here for movies like, uh, Hellraiser 3, Return to Oz, the low budget Wizard of Oz sequel. Yeah. It's got some weird choices, and I Sufjan has said before he does not have very sophisticated movie taste, but um, he also said that this record is largely, like, not about the movies. It was, like, a jumping-off point for writing. Um, but I think some of, there's some clear inspiration. Like, I think... Uh, in uh it's your own body and mind which is inspired by she's gotta have it um it's one of the only songs that actually like name drops the movie that it was inspired by um so it and i think uh reach out the one inspired by wings of desire uh the lyrical content definitely definitely relates to um what's happening in the movie So that song in particular, that first track, um, it starts with the song inspired by Wings of Desire. And I think that's a really strong starting point because it feels like classic Sufjan right off the bat. Um, which I think is a, it's a s smart way to start the album, especially also it starts with one of the movies that I feel like more Sufjan fans would be uh, familiar with as opposed to like a Hellraiser 3. Um, right yeah um no yeah i certainly agree that hellraiser 3 certainly would be a, a kind of a weird uh, decision but i he I, he always kind of likes to have interesting themes for albums like if you look at the history of mm -hmm. uh stuff that he's put out he's always had some interesting projects i mean like he wanted to do a different project for every state in the united states and like that's an incredibly hard task to pull off so i think it's kind of fitting for him to be picking some more obscure and odder choices mm -hmm. yeah for such a like he's taken very seriously but i don't i think he takes himself maybe less seriously than a lot of music publications and fans take him um mostly because his music is generally not you know is generally very serious but it seems like uh in his interviews and the way he talks about himself he's a little more uh he seems to take himself a little bit less seriously and that's and he also seems to i think find art like artfulness in the sort of uh, odd with something like you know low budget horror movies that are not the you know accepted form of good but have their own artfulness in their own way right yeah uh yeah, yeah look through the... Oh, sorry. Say that. Um, there's a lot of points on this album, especially with D'Augustine. Um, he's kind of a newcomer. He's on Sufjan's label. He's released a couple of albums that didn't make huge waves. Um, they were very, you know, typical sort of lo-fi indie acoustic, the kind of person you'd expect Sufjan to sign. Um, and honestly, Sufjan's presence is far more noticeable on this album than D'Augustine's. Um, D'Augustine has one solo track. Uh, Murder and Crime, which is inspired by Mad Max, and it's like so reminiscent of Elliot Smith to me. Yeah, I generally agree with that. But I um, 
I know you're saying um, Sufjan's uh, presence was obviously seen on the album, but I think Arvin Scenes was certainly as well because it is kind of a callback to his earlier work. It has this lo-fi sound that he... Mm-hmm. So I think that was certainly purposeful that he was working with him on this album, and that's why yeah. the album has this more lo-fi, certainly um, much more acoustic sound to it than... Um, it's more recent stuff. Yeah, I don't think this album really happens without Da Augustine. Like, if I were right. to speculate, like, um, Da Augustine, yeah, he... I feel like maybe was the catalyst for this kind of project. Because Sufjan just hasn't written like this in years. No. So maybe just having somebody else there who does work currently work in that very folky lane. Um, I think maybe that sort of. Um, like helped push Sufjan back into that direction, even though he kind of doesn't do that anymore. Um, I also want to highlight Back to Oz, uh, the song inspired by the sequel to Wizard of Oz, Return to Oz. Um, It's a nice, like, groovy, almost funky track. It's got these nice, like, funky guitar plucks in the background and some uh, cool guitar solos. That song is just really groovy and fun to listen to. Like if there's like a hit, I put I'm putting up air quotes. If there's a hit off this record, it's that song. I think that one's like the easiest, probably one of the more accessible tracks. Not that this album is like inaccessible that really, but that 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 song I think stands out as like the quote unquote hit. Yeah, I um I think it's actually probably I was checking on the Spotify earlier before I uh, logged in. It was, I think that's the most popular one on the album at the moment as well. So I certainly see where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not at all surprised by that. Surprised um, I also, Lady Macbeth in Chains is probably my favorite song on the record. It's from a movie. It's inspired by a movie I have not seen, All About Eve. Um, but uh, it's got this nice, I'm a sucker for electronic Sufjan, so... Uh, <laughs> There's this like electronic breakdown at the end that feels like something off of uh, his last album, The Ascension, which I adored, um, and I, I just really like that track. So I actually kind of differ than you that way. I um I grew up listening to um, the Illinois album mm-hmm. a lot as a kid. It was just always in the car with my parents. Mm-hmm. So I'm I really like his older stuff so i i like the more the second half of the album i remember um fictional california was mm-hmm. uh one of my one of my favorites off the album because it has that classic um like orchestration that you would yeah. see um and it, it, like it has that yeah just that classic sufian uh orchestration with like lots of bells and super arpeggiated guitars and it's just like lots of layered instruments that uh kind of create this mm-hmm. Just grandiose feeling. That's where I definitely agree with like the um, the uh, comparisons to Illinois because Illinois is very well orchestrated, like you said. Yeah. It's like extremely. Um, it's well composed. It's um, got amazing uh, string sections. Um, so uh, it's really an excellent record. Um, but. And you feel that instead of being completely folky, it's got piano on almost every song, right. it's got strings, it's got drums on a lot of the tracks. So it feels not like an acoustic folk album. It feels more like complete. It feels more fleshed out, which I think is definitely, I think a, it, that's why I think this record sits so well with so many people is because it doesn't feel, it still feels like a development despite being almost like a throwback, but it doesn't yeah, it's a progression back into it's a synergy of his older and his uh, newer sounds. And I think it would be interesting if Sufjan made, like, made another Illinois-type record. Like, if he really went back and made something like that. I don't think he'll ever return to the 50 States thing. Um, No. (laughs) But uh, it would be interesting if he really did a throwback and did a record like that. I'm curious to see what that, to hear what that would be like. Um... So now uh, we're. Oh, this to- is. I don't think this is necessarily a bad glimpse of what that would do. Though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Now I'm going to uh, play a song off of this Sufjan record. So, enjoy. All right. All right. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Can you hear me fine? Yeah, I can hear you. Um, 
So I just want to start off by asking, what what do you do at DePaul? Good question. Um, well, I'm um, uh, a full-time faculty member at the School of Cinematic Arts. Um, I've actually been associated with DePaul for a very long time in, in several different ways. So uh, everything sort of kind of blurs together. I actually went to DePaul as an undergraduate many years ago. I was part of like the first graduating class uh, at the, what's now the School of Cinematic Arts, but what was uh, at that time known as um, Digital Cinema. It was the Digital Cinema Program at CDM, which was also known as CTI back then. I mean, that just shows you how far back I go. So uh, I think it was 2005 when I started there. So I went there as an undergrad and then uh, graduated from that program, went to grad school at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, then came back and uh, started adjuncting. And then uh, they bumped me from an adjunct to like a full-time faculty member after a few years. And so in one form or another, I've been a demon for God, what is that like 16 years wow with a small break of living in scotland mm. uh, in between, so i've kind of seen it all and done it all i guess that's really and, cool uh, yeah now i teach um i'm a filmmaker as well and um i have a lot of fun it's it's uh, it's a great school and it's a great place and obviously it's basically been my home for 16 years so yeah so we brought you on. You wanted to talk about uh, Terrence Malick movies. So, what was your like introduction to his films? Um, I think the first Malick film I saw, the first Terrence Malick film I saw, was The Thin Red Line. Okay. I came to that not knowing who Terrence Malick was, mm-hmm. but I've always been a big student of history, a fan of history, and um, military history has often fascinated me. Mm-hmm. So um, I just sort of was like, wow, there's this big World War II movie coming out. And, oh, my goodness, look at the cast. And oh, it's about Guadalcanal. It's such an important moment in World War II. And mm-hmm. yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm in. And, and so I saw that film and, and was just blown away by it. Mm-hmm. No pun intended, you know, this war film. Uh, but yeah. What about that film, like, worked for you? I mean, everything. Um, it's probably my favorite movie of all time. Wow. Uh, the film that I've studied the most, um, personally and academically. It's a film that I, I, I revisit very often just to sort of, refill my soul whenever i feel it's not a light watch at all no but it's an incredibly beautiful watch i mm-hmm. think and an incredibly rewarding watch if you if you go into it i think with your eyes open and your heart open mm-hmm. and, and understand that it is not just some warm movie you yeah. know so I think that's a really important part. Yeah, it sits among, like, the canon of, like, art house war movies. Like, I think it stands it's sort of above, like, a Saving Private Ryan or something like that, which is, like, a very standard war movie. But you've got, like, that. you've got The Thin Red Line, Apocalypse Now, Pads of Glory. You've got these, like, art house war movies that are kind of, like, a step above. They go above and beyond in what they're trying to present. Are you familiar with the French film director François Truffaut? Uh, I am. I have not seen any of his movies, unfortunately. François Truffaut is a very pivotal figure in cinema history. Um, one of the sort of founding figures of the French New Wave. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of, well, a lot of the French New Wave filmmakers actually started as young film critics. Yeah. Uh, people who were just passionate about watching movies and experiencing movies. And when Truffaut was a critic, 
he famously declared that there was no such thing for him as an anti-war film. Mm. But he believed that there was such a thing as an anti-war film because he felt that war films, even when they're so-called like, you know, portraying war in a negative light, often lead to audience um, sort of identification with Mm -hmm. a side or a faction. And a lot of war films end up making it a spectacle. And, And so even when they say that they're sort of trying to you know, oh, we're, we're an anti-war film, they end up sort of making war look exciting or, uh, you know, formative in some way. Yeah. Uh, in the, the violence and chaos in a way that he felt was sort of like contrary to what it was trying to do. Mm-hmm. One thing, uh, oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to agree with you in a certain way. Um, when, and I, one thing that I noticed in like a lot of war fr- films or in all war films, they always kind of romanticize that uh, sense of brotherhood you get from like your faction or your um, or uh, the company that you're in. Like, oh, like they're like, oh, yes, we create this incredibly tight bond. And it, when like someone watches a war film, they're like, oh, I want to feel that way. I want to have this group of people that I just am incredibly close with. So my my thing with war films and the reason I'm always like going kind of skeptical is because for me, it's like a movie that's really easy to make dramatic. Like, it's war. Of course it's dramatic. Like, it's easy to pull on the heartstrings and wring a lot of emotion out of it because it's so intense. Um, And so I prefer the war movies that, like, really... um, I mostly actually prefer war movies that are, like, the more the political, like, side of things. Like, like Paths of Glory is probably, I would say, my favorite war movie. Um, So what, what about The Thin Red Line like makes it an anti-war movie because on first watch it almost doesn't feel like an anti-war movie but it it, it certainly is one well i don't know to be honest with you i actually over the years i've struggled with that question of like i don't know if it's purely an anti-war film um i think that what malik's doing is a lot more complicated than that. Mm. Um, he's he he presents war as this sort of like qualitative force that people are kind of thrust into and have different reactions to. Mm-hmm. So you know, Malachi's kind of presenting war for the audience to engage with. I think the key to really understanding Terrence Malick is to is to is to know that before he was a filmmaker, he was a philosopher. Mm-hmm. That he was a philosophy student, and really, I look at his films as a philosopher that's just chosen to work in the medium of film. Yeah, it's almost like instead of like a lot of movies have like theses, his movie almost like poses a his movies like pose a question instead. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's a great way of putting it. And so for me, I. I I think that the thin red line is is posing war as a question, mm-hmm. and throughout the film you have a lot of characters kind of debating it, discussing it, uh-huh. themselves questioning it, um, and and so I, I don't think Malik is clearly just coming out and saying like mm-hmm. war is a terrible thing, and and under no circumstances should we ever go to war. I think that like yes, that's a very idealistic way of looking at things, but it's. Mm-hmm. throughout the history of humanity also a very unrealistic way of looking at things like humanity is constantly going to screw up and war is often the, i would say well war to me is the biggest screw up of humanity mm-hmm. that we seem to 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 you know have trouble avoiding uh and and you you certainly can look at something even like world war ii and say yes in the grand sort of you know humanistic thing i wish there was no war and war would never exist well sometimes you know people like hitler show up and sometimes you know you have these these horrible moments in history where you know talk dialogue whatever it's just like there was there was no way that that was going to work and it's again a much more complex issue than i think any of us yeah i don't think we have time in the podcast to go over the entire like complex history of why world war ii was (laughs) sure fought Right, yeah, no, exactly. But but it, again, I think that, like, what Malik is saying is, like, okay, let's just say 
there is this thing, this this war of necessity mm-hmm. that World War Two has often been seen as this war of necessity. Okay, is there a way to do it if we have to do it? If we're forced to do it, if we have no escape from it. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to do it where we don't lose our humanity? Where I mean, for lack of a better term, in a very reductive way, is there a way to like fight war the right way? I guess, and I think that's that's really at the heart of the thin red line. Obviously, there are questions like, why is there war? Why do we have war? Okay, but when you're on the battlefield, bullets are flying. You don't really have the luxury to sit there and debate. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you kind of you can do that in the moments that you you have to think of, you have time to think in the low, you know, between battles. But Malik is, you know, he's he's in some respects finding beauty and and uh, grace is a really important concept for him oh yeah in- with oh. life i mean that's all about grace yeah so if like war is part of that nature you know and and i think that's what he says mm-hmm. then is there a way to sort of also engage with it gracefully mm-hmm. There's certainly a, a lot of parallels. I know you brought the word grace, and then so Malik doesn't um, likes to touch on grace versus nature in a lot of his films. And there's a lot of um, parallels in the characters um, and, and within our lines. So like Staros uh, versus the um, the Colonel, how they constantly have these arguments about whether to send these men in, and then uh, Mitt and just his um, troubles just with being in the. Uh, just the army in general, and uh, I mean, yeah, being in the um, the army. So I still would say it shows the two parallels between like it splits the line between which characters are in the this graceful sense and which characters are in this more naturalistic sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that that scene that you're talking about to me is really it's the it's the it's the philosophical part of of the film. Um, and you know that 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 discussion, which becomes a very you know passionate argument between the two of them, continues to be played out through the film. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's even that moment where Colonel Tall, played by Nick Nolte, and I think his best performance of his entire career, um, he says to him, he says to Staros. Look at the vines. He points to the jungle. Look at the vines swallowing everything up. He literally says nature. He says yeah. nature is like evil or something like that. Yeah. Which is cruel. That's yeah. And so he's telling Staros, like, you have to, you have to become that. You have to be that as well in order to exist. And Staros doesn't see it that way. Obviously, he has a very different way of, of looking at things. He sees life as precious. And hey, even if we have to fight, I'm I'm not easily going to just sacrifice people. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think just American soldiers, you know, is there a way that we can maybe take this position and, and, and not have to like unnecessarily kill lots of the enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that same kind of discussion is also played out. That same sort of disagreement is also played out between Sean Penn's character yeah. and Jim Caviezel's character, Private Wit, where they also look at, you know, this from, from a different perspective. But there's multiple characters sort of doing this. And, and again, that's why I, I say Malik isn't really like giving, or as you put it, like giving you answers. He's giving you questions. He's presenting these debates and he's letting you engage with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think he very easily is pointing a finger and saying, he's wrong, he's right. I think it also seems like um, Penn's character has that uh, debate with himself too. He certainly does a lot of uh, quote unquote graceful things. Um, like he clearly goes out of his way to uh, try and help every um, every man in, um, under his command, even though he might at times come off as like a bit of an asshole to these men, and certainly to, uh, to admit, but he clearly cares about them maybe a bit more than the Colonel might seem at first glance. Yeah. Yeah, he's a very, very interesting character because I think we see him, like you said, actually kind of grow throughout the film. Now, but again, in this weird way, war is a formative experience for him because, you know, at the start, he very clearly says to to Private Wedge, Jim Caviezel's character, like, 
you know, the best thing you can do in this world is trying to blow itself to hell is just shut yourself off from it, look out for yourself, and make sure that you survive, you know. Um, but wit is like, nah, I, I disagree. And, and you see that with wit, who is constantly sort of caring for people, going out of his way, trying to alleviate suffering. Yeah, and I remember um, at the towards the end of the movie, I I forget who Sean Penn's character was having an argument with, but he clearly just seemed so fed up with the word. He was just screaming that it was all just about useless property. Yeah, so that scene is a really, really like a really powerful scene. That's you know, there's a soldier who's been wounded and he's sort of stuck out in the open and. They're having trouble getting to the soldier who's just screaming, you know, this blood curdling cries has been like gut shot, you know, on the battlefield. And 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 in a very strange or uncharacteristic moment for him to this point, Sean Penn does like leap up and run through machine gun fire yeah. to 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 give this soldier some you know, at first he thinks he's gonna rescue him, and then realizes he's too far gone. And just gives him some morphine to like ease his pain, you know, and runs back. And that's when, you know, Staros, Captain Staros, and the others are like, oh my God, this is the bravest thing we've ever seen, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, I'm going to give you a medal and we're going to write you company orders. And that's when, yeah, Sean Penn like yells and snaps at him, like, don't you dare give me a medal. Yeah. Don't you dare. And if you do attempt to give me a medal or tell anybody what I did, I'm going to resign my commission and leave this place and blah, blah, blah. I'm leaving you alone here to run the busted up outfit. I think what he calls it. And that's what he says. It's about property. The whole thing's about property. And I've had a lot of discussions with people about that line. Like, what does he mean by that? What does he mean property? The whole thing's about property. There are some people who say property in the sense that this is all just about property, the land that we're trying to take. We're trying to evict these people from. Like, this whole stupid thing is just about stupid property. But there's other ways of reading it, too, that I think property meaning soldiers the soldiers are the property of the u.s government and all he's doing all he did was try to like save some of that property right or protect some of that property and then it's also about ownership you know like these are our soldiers so we have authority over them and we should also have authority of them over their their deaths their their suffering that sort of thing so again Malik will not just give you a very clear, easy answer. He wants you to walk away from this film, like all of his films, and to to think about it. And not just the film, but think about the ideas that the film is presenting. I find it really interesting that Malik actually revisited World War II in his most recent film, A Hidden Life, and he visits a very different side of World War II. Like, very different. Where the thin red line is about the war, A Hidden Life is about specifically the suffering of um, uh, one specific man in a concentration camp. Um, and I find it interesting to revisit that event and really zoom in where I think The Thin Red Line is almost like a very zoomed out movie where it's got so many different characters and, um, you know, a lot of them played by A-listers um, and so many different things happening. Uh, Hidden Life, you know, zooms in on this one person's experience. <laughs> in the war yeah i think that's a really good way of putting it um yeah i guess the thin red line is kind of yeah sort of a macro uh depiction of of humans in war we see a lot of them like you said and then yeah in a hidden life it's very micro it's not just one person but it's also like really going inside of one person into their 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 psychology and their spirituality and really like laser focusing like you said on on that experience but but again also i mean it is a story about people caught up in war and um about choices that people make and and how they engage with it i think um it's also something that you do sort of see in the thinner line you know it's 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 an attempt to also humanize in quotation marks uh the enemy you know i'm putting the enemy in quotation marks here because again in, in the traditional war film um you know the the enemy is is very clear you know it's the other side you know and germans were all nazis and they're all our enemy and every german you come across 
You know, you just you blow away one or two. You know, it's like the, the inglorious bastards kind of mindset that, you know, the only good Nazis are dead Nazis, no Nazis. And now it's like, no. And it's true. The reality is it's far more complex than that. I mean, there was conscription. And that's really what the film is sort of focusing on. It's like people were being forced, Germans were being forced to, to put on these uniforms. And, and horribly, as the war got worse and worse and worse, like those conscription numbers had to go up and up and up to the point by, by the end of World War II, you know, the Germans were throwing out 10-year-old boys. I mean, you know, that's played with sort of humorously in Jojo Rabbit. But it's like, it's true. I mean, they were, they were sending out kids in, into battle and old men, people who are like 78 years old and just throwing them. The, the, the line from uh, Paul Virilio is like Hitler's attempt to suicide the nation, you know, and just, just throw everything at it. But Mount also does that in the thin red line, like that, that huge horrible battle that we see in the film over this hill. Mm-hmm. Compared directly to something like Saving Brother Ryan, when the Americans who've been just, we watch them suffer and they're our boys and we see, you know, as Americans talking about this, we see them suffer and we want them to take the hill. We want them to, to, to you know, have vengeance upon this enemy that they fought against. Mount does something really interesting. He, he, he denies you that because once they take the, the hill, the position, they, they find the Japanese soldiers who were, you know, defending it and giving them so much trouble. They look pathetic. They look... They're crying. They're crying. They're young. They're malnourished. And that's that's also, again, very true. More Japanese soldiers died at Guadalcanal from starvation and disease than from American soldiers killing them. Because they were under they were under, you know, supplied by their own officers and, and uh, government. And the, the suffering for them was was, was tenfold what the American troops went through. And, and now it shows you this. To again be like, oh, you think it's some big, rabid, you know, frothing at the mouth fanatic. And it's really just often a scared boy mm-hmm. like you on the other end. Um, and yeah, again, war's terrible for everybody. It sucks for everybody. Mm-hmm. But, you know, should we also then show show grace right to this person who's most likely been forced for one reason or another to be on the other side from us that is also perhaps as reluctant and also has loved ones and people who care about them and maybe in another life they're a perfectly gentle soul who would never think to do that we see a similar thing in the new world when we have this sort of um uh you know, almost warlike relationship between the Native Americans and the English settlers. Um, and uh, I think that the movie does a really good job of humanizing everybody in that movie and, sh- like, taking time to show what's happening, to show the, the different perspectives and um, I think it's just a really well done, nuanced movie, um, yep. and it takes a similar approach to the Thin Red Line in how it approaches that nuance. Malik likes exploring opposition, mm-hmm. um, philosophical opposition, spiritual opposition, physical opposition, but I think a huge part of that opposition for him is also trying to show how um, how how similar we are in spite of the fact that we 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 focus so much on these oppositions you know and being like you're different from me you see things differently from me and I mean my goodness like I wish we had more of that pragmatism in our country in our culture uh, because we don't, you know, we, we currently live in a, in a, in a very broken world that, that seems to, to, to only find value in opposition mm-hmm. and to, and to, to look at opposition as something that's very unforgiving, you know, that you voted for a Republican. 
Like, you're dead to me. <laughs> like, you voted for a Democrat? Like, I'm never going to associate with you. You know, that kind of stuff. And, and you know, and it's why we, we can't, why we continue to fail. Like, and why we continue to sort of, like, perpetuate these states, I think, of violence. And I don't just mean, like, physical violence, like, the mind, but also, like, yeah, spiritual violence, um, psychological violence, emotional violence, mm-hmm. economic violence. Uh, and and Malik is somebody that he, he tries to sort of show you that opposition can be formative if it's approached gracefully, right? That it's good to have disagreements. It's good to see things differently. Because maybe the thing that you look at differently when, when it collides with my worldview is going to teach me something. But if we hadn't collided, if we hadn't had that opposition, would either of us have the opportunity to, to grow? Yeah, that's a lot of what we see in the New World where the English settlers are just like completely destroyed by this new natural environment that they don't understand. And we get both emotionally and literally a rela- like physical relationship like where he actually visits John Smith actually visits the Native American camp and learns from them as well as we get this emotional relationship between him and Pocahontas um, where he learns bo- both their like literal physical tools on how to survive in the land but also how to emotionally survive in the land um, and so they learn from each other in that way and then we get the reverse when Pocahontas goes to England and she learns all these new cultural things. Um, so they do, in a sense, teach each other something. And it's not always good. Right? I mean, I should put it that way, too. It's not always like, oh, and then everybody learns. And it's, and yeah, because at the end of the day, the, in the New World, I think largely the settlers are portrayed as not the heroes of the story. Well, even using the word heroes is maybe, you know, not exactly, I think, the best for, for Malik. You know, he, heroes and villains don't exist for him. They well, you just have to go back to his first film, Badlands, where, you know, it's incredibly violent. So violent, the Zodiac Killer came out of retirement to, like, tell people it was too violent. And he sort of confronts the idea of goodwill in violence yeah and (laughs) yeah it's just an incredibly like from the very beginning of his filmography he was already posing these questions about violence and opposition um even though badlands stands very differently from the rest of his filmography it doesn't have all those wide angles you know shots and the voiceover and everything it's shot like a normal 70s movie but it's still posing those same questions as the thin red line as the new world as a hidden light i think there's a really i think there's like several phases to his career mm-hmm. and um the first phase is obviously badlands and days of heaven mm-hmm. uh, and you know, then he took like a 20 year break, basically. Yeah. yeah. He sort of weird for 20 years. And, you know, there's all kinds of legends about, about that, you know, what he was doing in those 20 years. And like, some of it's been overblown. I mean, like you read about it, there were projects that he was trying to like make and, and uh, get done. And there were a lot of things he almost made during that time period. But I think it was also uh, in that gap, an opportunity for him to personally grow. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's always growing, he's always learning. And what's interesting about Malik, if you look at a lot of his career, sort of as his career went on, like he got more and more youthful in a way. He got more and more playful and sort of improvisational and experimental. Usually it's the other way around. You know, a lot of filmmakers will start with this sort of very youthful spirit of. Let's just do anything. Anything goes. And it's going to be like improv, man. And, you know, it's just going to be radically different. 
And then, you know, people start making compromises in their career and their movies get more and more boring as they get older, like a lot of people in life, you know, but now it's quite different. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, he really was kind of developing backwards. Yeah, with each each movie, I notice his um, very distinctive uh, cinematography style certainly gets more and more present. And you can see it in Days of Heaven. Like, you can see, like... I'm young, so I haven't seen any of his movies in the theater, so I got to watch his entire filmography in, like, two weeks. Um, so you can, like, seeing hints of what was to come in Days of Heaven, in the way it's shot, in the way there is, like, a little bit of voiceover from one character, and, like, you can sort of see the seeds of what was eventually coming in. I think The Thin Red Line is what you could consider, like, the first movie in the, like, signature Malick style. And even that is tame compared to, like, something like Tree of Life, which was only, what, like, ten issues later? Mm-hmm. And then compared to his even more recent work, how his uh, camera style is just even more Malicky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say, like, Phase 2, you know? Like, yeah. Phase 1 is, is, is Badlands Days Ahead. Phase 2 is, you know, starts with the Thin Red Line, and then... Um, I think kind of culminates in Tree of Life. Yeah, I see that as his like second phase. Yeah, I agree with that. And then you've and, got the trilogy that he has this, uh, you know, song to song to the wonder and uh, uh, Knight's Cup, which are just you know full on experimental, done entirely over voiceover, not very accessible at all. The story is fractured and not very clear. Um, and he just like fully commits to that style, but it's very emotive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think like personally for me, uh, that third phase, I'm, I'm a huge Malik head, you know, uh, and that third phase I find difficult. Um, I myself am not a fan of it either. Well, well, you say you like him, but yeah, it's certainly not my cup of tea. I get it in a way, but I think Knight's Cop, uh, uh, excuse me, um, Knight of Cops, yeah, is a mess. (laughs) I think it's a fucking mess. Many people agree, right? You think about how Malik shoots films, right? Like. I remember James Horner, uh, who did the um, score for The New World, got so mad at um, Malik because Malik basically shot all this material, and then he like completely recreates, like makes the film on the in the editing room. Like he has no idea what he's doing going in. He just shoots a whole bunch of different scenes and a whole bunch of different things, and then the editing is where all the story happens. And he was getting like so upset because he wasn't using his music. James Horner said he was writing, like, the most beautiful music he had ever written, and instead, Malik was just putting Wagner tunes over it. Well, and, you know, to talk about that, like, his editing, um, I actually, I, uh, I have a very good friend who uh, interned as an editor's assistant on Tree of Life. Ooh. And she told me mind-blowing stories about his process. And obviously, you can hear them, you can read stories of people, you know, talking about his editing process. And yeah, I mean, that's really where he, he builds the film. I mean, going back to what we originally started with, The Thin Red Line, there's like eight different versions of that movie. The original cut was like six hours long. Yeah, I remember Adrian Brody had a couple of quarrels with him because his part was incre- incredibly reduced. You have A-listers in that movie who get like two minutes of screen time. Like, a lot you don't see at all. I mean, Brad Pitt was in it. You don't see a minute of Brad Pitt. Billy Bob Thornton, at one point, one of the cuts that was delivered, Billy Bob Thornton was the main character. You don't see a minute of Billy Bob Thornton. Now, people have pointed out through the years, you can kind of, if you look in the background, sometimes see them. Um, and if you get the Criterion Blu-ray, they have some of those deleted scenes. There's like a scene with Mickey Mark cut out of the movie. You know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of stuff there, but but for Malik, yeah, I mean, that's, that's again, in phase two where he began with sort of beginning this process of, like, I'm going to get a bunch of stuff, and then I'm going to build it in the editing room. Um, and then, you know, when you get into phase three, it's like, it's 
you know, it, it's totally off the deep end. <laughs> and some of it's great, some of it's kind of a mess. But I, I kind but of have written, a soft spot for To the Wonder. I like that movie, even though Ben Affleck is kind of the most punchable actor in Hollywood. Uh, yeah. I still think, Mal I like when Malik zooms in on these, like, Tree of Life, actually probably my favorite Malik, but Tree of Life, Thin Red Line, tell these big stories. And I really like it when he goes into a, um, uh, I really like it when he zooms into something small and really looks at the to the to the, the totalism of the totality is the word I'm looking for the totality of those smaller relationships. Yeah, look, I, I should preface. Well, I should preface it. I guess I should I should sort of clarify that I think every Malick film uh, should be watched. Like yeah. you should watch his movies. Yeah. I'm not telling you right here. But they're useless. You know, I would rather watch Night of Cups than uh, Avengers Endgame any day. You know, I would fight more to, to play with and draw from there than in anything that Disney or Marvel would spit out. So, so even even when he sort of quote fails, I think he he does so in a way that is more creative, interesting, and individual than anything you're going to see from like you know, uh, cookie-cutter, major Hollywood blockbuster, yes. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, even though I'm, I'm not a huge fan of some of that, the Phase 3 or, you know, his, his work that he made in the, the late 2000s, um, you know, I, I still am like, there's no one like him, and, and mm -hmm. God bless him, I'm glad that he's out there doing that kind of stuff. And I really like, there's some great, great movies that have taken some obvious inspiration from Malick. One of my favorites is Spring Breakers. I, I love that movie, and it takes very obvious inspiration from Malick in the way it's done. Yeah. I noticed, I noticed some... Uh, uh, I noticed in Nomadland, it took some... Yeah, uh, Nomadland. A lot of Malicky inspiration as well. Uh, Chloe Zhao actually um, has a Criterion like bonus feature um, on the New World thing where she talks about the new world um Malik is influenced um a whole generation of filmmakers mm -hmm. uh not just american but you know ar around the world uh yeah of uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives takes inspiration from him i would say i'd say the whole slew of a24 movies are shot like are shot like even the green knight which just came out looks a lot like, you know, the greens in that movie look a ton like the New World. And again, it goes to his process, I think. It's for Malik, like, you know, so many people in film talk about, they refer to film as storytelling. Like, mm -hmm. hell, my, many of my colleagues, you know, <laughs> they call it storytelling. And uh, that's what the, the, the film, a lot of the film community says, it's storytelling, storytelling, storytelling. And I get that, and I respect that, but that's one way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. Malik, I think, is a very different approach. He's not interested in storytelling. He's interested in, in like, image crafting, yeah. in, like, image making. His stuff is almost, like, impressionistic in that way, where it's... Sure. Yeah. It, it's, it's about... It's, it's sort of gives you a lot of pieces to work with. Um... Film is a visual medium. Yeah. And, and this dude gets it. And uh, so many people I wish understood that. Mm -hmm. um, movies, I think, in, in the last 20 years, um, to me, there's just so much stuff that's just like so boring. And movies that are still using D.W. Griffith's grammar, you know, this is like, hundred-year-old film language from a, a racist piece of garbage and Hollywood is still like that's the way to do it that's industry standard you know mm -hmm. so Malik has inspired a whole new generation of people that are 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 starting with the image and so yeah, it's what's unique in the image not what's traditional or, or, you know, um, I think, you know, safe in that way. 
Yeah, certainly with at least more popular or more mainstream movies, there is a lot less emphasis on the uh, the shot in modern times, for sure. And not just like, look, there are beautiful movies that are shot. No, no, that's what I'm saying. I'm just, I mean, like, like literally, like, like take, say you took a still. There's like a lack of art in the way that they're framing the camera. Yeah. But I mean, I'm just trying to say too, like, look, don't get me wrong, they're also, you know, sort of classically shot and composed films that I think are are incredibly beautiful, you know? But with Malik, it isn't just the idea of like crafting a, a well-composed sort of shot on a set. Like his sets are, you know, meant to be as as like he, he builds the milieu, he builds a world where he puts people into a world and then he lets them play in it. And his camera sort of floats around and just tries to capture those those moments of play in the world. I mean, he is so much like obsessed with authenticity. I can tell you another story of a friend that I, I had who was a carpenter on the New World. And he told me that when they got to the set, Malik informed everyone, these these carpenters, that they were only allowed to use tools that were period authentic to build the sets of the new world. So like the forge and all that stuff, like he's like, we were, we're high recovery. We get there with our drills and our power tools and we're like, we can get this thing up in four or five hours. And now it was like, no, 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 no. Every bolt, every nail has to be put in with tools from that time period. Mm-hmm. And, so then even the carpenters, like he said, it was this amazing experience for them because it's like, we built that fort the way that those people would have built that fort. You, you don't necessarily see that on screen, but for everyone there, it's just this process of, of to the best of their abilities at times, like um, being in it, being there. And, and I find that just so incredibly impressive as a filmmaker myself you know i'm going yeah we could do this quick or we could do it right and for him right means real or or honest on a certain level i mean that's nuts to me you know Um, we could just trade eccentric malik stories all day because there are just so many his favorite movie is zoolander like yeah he's just a he's a very eccentric guy Um, but you know one of the rumors about him uh, was that during his hiatus, he was also a hairdresser for a little while. I don't know if you ever heard that story. I have not heard that, but that's wild. Uh, to wrap up here, because it's getting to be just about nine, I just want to ask you, what are your three favorite movies? It can be three movies you're really into right now, three, like, you know, very, like, solid classics that you love, but three favorite <clears throat> movies. Well, we've been talking about one, The Thin Red Line. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I, I co-host a podcast uh, where we talk about movies. And uh, every week, uh, one of the hosts picks a topic and the two other co-hosts, you know, are challenged to bring films that meet that topic. Mm. We just wrapped, right before I came on your show, this week's episode, where we watched two amazing films. Uh, one, Far From Heaven by Todd Haynes. 